Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 274th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Maria King. Maria is the co-founder of Transcend PM, a practice management coaching and consulting firm based in Concord, Massachusetts. What's unique about Maria, though, is how she not only helps advisors with hiring and compensation plans for next-generation advisors, but goes even deeper into constructing legacy plans for advisors to outline not only a plan for succession, but to detail how their firms and clients should be handled if something happens to them along the way as well. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Maria helps advisors focus on their firm's values from business and culture and client experience to investment philosophy and business strategy to ensure that they choose a well-aligned successor to purchase the business. How Maria utilizes four pillars of consulting, coaching, human resources, design development, and internal firm growth programs to create bespoke legacy plans for advisory firms. And how Maria helps advisors understand why it's important to recognize that their business succession decisions have such a ripple effect that impacts family, staff, colleagues, and of course, clients. We also talk about how Maria was drawn to working with advisors on succession planning issues after seeing firsthand that only about a third of advisors had a succession or continuity plan in place, not necessarily as a result of lack of planning per se, but because of how connected succession is to the psychological hurdle of facing our own mortality. How Maria helps advisors distinguish between being in business for themselves as opposed to just by themselves. And how, with the help of advisor friends and her entrepreneurial husband and his complementary skills, Maria gained confidence to start her own consulting business after working for nearly 20 years for a large broker-dealer. And be certain to listen to the end, where Maria shares how, after leaving her former career, she entered a period of self-reflection to decide what was next and realized she still had a drive to continue to share her knowledge and expertise. Why Maria believes it's so important to have self-awareness when mapping out the bigger picture and building an advisory career, and why Maria views work-life balance as truly a balance to be crafted rather than a binary concept where you're just working or not. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Maria King. Welcome, Maria King, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Well, thank you, Michael, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm really looking forward to the discussion today and and talking about what I don't know, I almost feel like is one of these elephants in the room in our advisor world conversations these days, which is, uh, is succession planning. You look at the broad-based industry surveys out there around succession planning, and it's pretty much the same year after year, something like 20 or 30% of advisors have any kind of written succession plan. And the and the overwhelming majority do not. And, and we've had these statistics coming out from folks like Cerulli Associates for, for a decade now of something like 50 to 70,000 advisors are going to retire in the next five to 10 years as we have this like giant, massive wave of, <laughs> of retiring advisors, which was supposed to create this succession crisis for us. Right. And we've been going through it for, I, I think, pretty much 10 years, as, as I recall, <laughs> since since like we started talking about this. And we're still here. It doesn't really feel like there's been a crisis, but there are more advisors exiting. There's more succession stuff planning. There's more firms figuring this out. We've certainly seen the boost in 
mergers and acquisitions, which to me is like the other way you exit if you're not internal successioning. It's like, mm-hmm. it's kind of happening, but more slow motion, but it's happening. And so just, I'm, I'm looking forward today to, to talking more about just like the real world dynamics of, I don't know, succession planning. Why is it not happening more? What does it look like when it is happening well? And, you know, how does succession planning move forward from here? Okay. Okay. So I, I, I think to to dive in, I'd love to start by just having you talk to us a little bit about you, just your firm and what you do. I know you do some consulting with advisors around a wide range of practice management issues, including succession planning. So tell us a little bit about your consulting firm to, to kick us off, and then we can kind of you know, just dive a little bit more into some of these issues that we're dealing with. Yeah, of course. I'm happy to. Transcend Practice Management is the firm that I founded last July. And it is designed to provide a wide range of practice management, consulting and coaching services to independent financial advisors. And while we do cover a range of business management issues, whether it's about strategic planning or human capital issues or growth, we do seem to have a a particular focus on succession planning right now. Primarily in, in response to the demand from the advisors with whom we're working, it's a topic that you know. To your point, advisors are, are very interested in, but I think have a, a difficult time executing on for for a number of reasons. You know, on the on the sort of the catastrophic side, planning for death and disability, I think facing their own mortality is is a big psychological hurdle for them to them to contend with in order to be able to to plan for that appropriately. And when I was at Commonwealth, we had about a third of the field force had had an agreement in place for that eventuality. And and it was it was it was a percentage that just never budged. Uh, we, we could never quite get get folks to see to see the way through to to make make a plan that they they were comfortable with. And on the other side is is the planned exit and whether that's you know for a sell and get out and be out all at one time or whether it's a phased transition or as you said, whether it's merging into another firm and then sort of reconstituting yourself into, until you until you leave. Advisors, I think, are, are intrigued by that, especially with valuations being where they are today. Some of the some yeah. of the numbers that are getting tossed around out there are crazy. Somebody called them frothy to me. You know, it's just, it's just like it's this whole thing that it's been kicked up, and it's it it just seems like it's a little bit amazing. And and so advisors are are, are intrigued by it, but for them, they 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 don't want to feel like they're being sort of vacuumed up by a larger organization, right. and that the you know the 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 unique flavor and, and culture that they built within their organization is just gone. You know, they, they really yeah. do want to have some kind of legacy. And so finding a way to exit in a way that they get value for what they built, but the legacy is preserved, you know, fitting into the right culture is, it, it's a bit of a chess game to, to try to find the right, the right solution for them. So most of what I'm working on is that, is that ladder, try, trying to help advisors figure out what is the balance of, of strategies for them to employ in order to get to a get to a succession plan that they feel good about. So I I'm struck a little bit by the di- just is the distinction you make. I think as you framed it, there's sort of the there's the the planned exits and the unplanned exits. Right there's the 
okay, I'm getting ready to sell and retire, so I want to do, whether it's, that's an internal succession or external sale, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And then there's the the unplanned exits, right? You know, death, disability, external mm-hmm. events that that drive us. And I, I guess as I'm curious for your thoughts, because I, I have always thought about these as being really quite substantively different. I, I feel like in the industry, often we cover all of that under this broad label of succession planning. Mm. Yeah. But at least to me, like I, I've always thought about the unplanned exit scenarios as something more akin to, I don't know, like I've, at one point I was using the label, just talking about it as continuity planning, mm-hmm. that like th- this isn't a succession plan, at least as classically constructed. When you usually, when you're, when you're planning for unplanned exit, right, you're planning for death and disability. This is essentially about continuity, like just continuity of service. Like, so clients are not disrupted. You don't have right. the situation of like, the advisor's managing your portfolio, and actually, the advisor passed away a few weeks ago, and no one's called you yet. Right. <laughs> like, there's right. literally no one manning the ship, and that that happened. Like, that actually oh, yeah. happens, particularly for some smaller and 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 solo firms. So, it's one thing to think about it as like, what is your continuity plan to make sure that clients are taken care of, and and perhaps if you're a if you're a little bit of a larger team and have a staff, like making sure that your team is taken care of. What's your continuity plan for you handling your team and your clients if something happens to you? To me, is substantively different than succession planning. Mm-hmm. That feels, I guess, not even just planned exit, but is kind of. You know, succession planning tends to be a retirement-oriented exit. Mm-hmm. Continuity planning is more of a death, disability, external events-driven right. <laughs> transition. Like, did, right. is that a? I'm just wondering. Like, is that a fair way to make a distinction? Do you do you think that's a, a helpful way to start talking about the landscape? I think so because I, I too see them as is very very different. You know, with a with a traditional succession plan, it's it's controlled, right? Like the 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 advisor who will eventually be leaving is participating in that process and is is helping to influence the success of that ultimate transition of clients and accounts and staff to that new organization. So there is there's an enormous amount of of control that they have in how they do it, when they do it, what the messaging is around it. With with the the continuity plan, and I I too have used that that label as well. Once the plan is invoked, there is no control. I you know it, right. by, by the exiting advisor. Yeah, it, it is a triggered event. Usually, it's triggered, like it may right. literally have right like buy sell agreement triggered in the event of death or, death or disability. Right. So when you think about that scenario, it's you know almost always a call out of the blue to that that partner on the continuity side of things to say, hey, you know, you're you're on the, this agreement as being the continuity partner for this advisor. I'm sorry to inform you, they've passed away. Are you ready to step in? And so out of the blue, that continuity partner now has to drop everything they're doing for their own business yeah. and step in and get oriented to this new business that may or may not be all that familiar to them. Yeah. And it's a tough, and the staff. I mean, the impact on staff. Yeah. yeah, it's 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 a totally different animal, and and so the valuations are different on the continuity side. They usually, you know, are at a lower multiple yep. than on the on the plan side because of that eventuality. And so you need you need a continuity partner then 
who has the ability to do that, who, who yeah. could pivot like that. So you're usually looking at larger firms for, for smaller advisors, looking at larger firms that, that, that could have the capacity to have yeah. somebody step in and be able to be that responsive in that circumstance. Yeah. It's, it reminds me, I had an advisor friend a couple of years ago. I will we'll, we'll keep him appropriately anonymized. Just call him Jim. <laughs> So like Jim was actually had a version of one of these, you basically continuity event agreements. I, I, I always call these the crosstown agreements, like Mm -hmm. advisor friend in town. If something (laughs) happens to me, then you buy my clients. If something happens to you, I'll buy your clients. And they just had this kind of reciprocal agreement. It was two, two solo advisors who were on their own with just an an admin staff each. Like they didn't, they didn't have another advisor in the firm to, Mm -hmm to succession to like mm-hmm. there was no there was no alternative for them so they said you know I'll, I'll you you buy mine I'll buy yours if something happens to either either of us mm-hmm. and and so they were in that agreement for for many years and you know I guess kudos to them like really actually ec- executed bona fide signed buy sell mm-hmm. agreements mm-hmm. like there there were the That's legal great. paperwork was done the stuff was in the stuff was in place and then the event got triggered oh. so Jim got the phone call from hit mm-hmm. from the now widow that so so and so had passed away and like she she found the paperwork of like mm-hmm. apparently oh, you're gosh. supposed to be buying this so you know according to the paperwork you're you're supposed to be buying this for I, I mean it was some moderately but not hugely reduced valuation number I, I want to say it was like one and a half times revenue and mm-hmm. quote unquote the going rate was was two times revenue and mm-hmm. so she was like well you know I my my husband's practice did about did about four hundred thousand dollars of revenue last year. I think it was like a forty million dollar practice or so. Mm-hmm. She's like, you know, so um, it looks like you owe us six hundred thousand dollars, <laughs> and you now have another seventy two clients that you should probably be calling immediately since mm. my husband passed away a few weeks ago, and I just found this. Oh gosh, and. And because they didn't even do so, there were all sorts of issues to this. Like one, the like the formula was fixed. You know, they thought they had put in a, a cons- quote conservative protection at, at valuing at one and a half times revenue, but it was that way. Like there was no if the clients transition, if the clients retain. Right. Like it didn't have contingencies. They just figured like a conservative number would protect for some of that. Right. But now all of a sudden, Jim was. A couple of weeks behind by the time the widow had gotten to the paperwork, but oh, wow. like the debt was already tolling. <laughs> yes, right, right. You owe the six hundred thousand, and you haven't even made the first phone call to get the first dollar of revenue to retain it yet. Wow. So wow. Jim had to just drop everything mm-hmm. to try to go re- go find retain the clients. Basically, like the admin staff had just been responding to them, trying to keep the wheels on the bus because the admin staff didn't actually know about the plan. Oh, my goodness. That it was there because, you know, they signed it years ago, probably before that admin had even joined. So the the admin and the wife are just trying to figure out how to keep the wheels on the bus and just not have clients flee out the door. Eventually, Jim gets the call. So he's got to go now immediately start meeting with 72 clients and better retain them because he's got a $600,000 debt hanging over his head to be able to service it. Which means he basically had to halt all meetings with his clients, right? Because there wasn't any time, right? Right. So you know, almost blew up his own practice, right? Had a horrific mad scramble with zero notice to go 
you know, try to save the the clients of the other advisor and and just all driving off of like it sounds like a neat thing to say, hey, I'll take care of yours, you take care of mine. Like we'll we'll have this reciprocal agreement. But going to the very heart of of what you'd said, like they made a continuity plan and like they they signed it and dotted the I's and crossed the T's, which was great. And granted, that valuation formula probably should have been contingent on revenue and not mm-hmm. just set as an upfront price. But mm-hmm. but like they, you know, they had terms and everything, but Jim just literally had no capacity right to handle this and so you know what what he ended out with was i think at the end like he retained about half of the other clients he lost almost a quarter of his own oh wow because he just like yeah he couldn't meet couldn't with them he it. couldn't right i mean just he he went he went from a really happy comfortable practice with his own 60 or 70 clients to about 140 clients overnight so wow. And 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 had to put all the focus on the other ones because that was the ones that had the debt <laughs> right, right, attached right. to it. So you know, fin- finished with a little over a hundred clients after he lost whatever, like ten or twenty of his and about thirty of the other person's. Oh wow! And 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 you know, finished you know, did okay financially because in the in the long run, advisory clients are still pretty profitable. So yeah. like yeah. was able to do okay, but. After about two years of misery, now you know, finished running a much bigger practice than he actually wanted. Mm-hmm. Now bringing in more money than he wanted after paying off a debt he didn't really want to have to deal with, and just like all of this stuff happened mm-hmm. because they were trying to do like the good thing of well, let's make sure we've got a continuity plan in place, but mm-hmm. just no thought to the capacity of if something happens, do you actually want the other person's clients on top of your own? And the answer right. was no. No. no I <laughs> yeah. a really nice practice. Right. And went through two years of chaos to get basically similar to where he was, but working more hours than he wanted to have more clients than he wanted. Wow. What a story. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's not unusual, unfortunately, mm. you know, and, and I think some of the, the ways that, that plans like this can be successful is to number one is all about communication, right? Like communicate that not only that you have a plan to your spouse or your partner, you know, whomever you're, you're sharing life with, you know, make sure that they know that you have the plan. Yes. That would have helped. At least Jim could have gotten a little bit more of a head start if his team and his, and his wife actually knew about the details of the agreement. They, they just sort of know, like, he'd done something, there was something in place. No one, no one ever really thought about it because he was healthy. <laughs> right. Right. So, so the communication thing is, is, is usually important because I don't know whether he experienced this, but in my experience, if, if that, if that successor the continuity partner can't get in front of clients pretty quickly within the first couple of weeks a healthy portion of the, the the top clients have found somebody else to work with like they're not waiting around for a continuity partner to reach out so no they don't they don't wait long again like a lot no. i think a lot of the other advisors clients just you know i mean the 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 admin staff couldn't hide it. So pretty much anybody who called and found out the advisor was dead and the admin staff did not have a good answer as to like, so what happens now? Right. Like they were just immediately looking it's for another Of course. Yeah, like, of course. You know, I really enjoyed working with the firm, but like there was only one advisor and he's dead. He's so gone. I'm just right. going to be finding another firm now. Right. Yeah. They're going to, you know, they're going to take care of their own self-interest. And so yeah. communication is huge to certainly to your life partner, 
to your staff, but also to your clients to let them know I do have a plan in place and this is who it's with and this is who they are. And and then getting your continuity partner in front of in front of your clients. And I, I find it odd that sometimes I've I've worked with advisors who have been reluctant to do that because they're afraid that the clients are going to choose to move to the continuity partner before anything happens, which I, I think would be unusual unless they were given reason to, or that the continuity partner is somehow going to pilfer the clients, which then makes them, number one, you didn't do your due diligence. And secondly, that they're not a good continuity partner if you think that. So there's just some of the, some irrational thinking that, that goes into why advisors don't share information about their continuity partner with their clients, but they really, really should. And then the other thing I say is, you know, if you have a continuity partner, be sure that you're staying in touch with them at least once a year to revisit your agreement and make sure it still works for both of you and that you're thinking through, like, what happens if this thing triggers? Like, what what yeah. what goes down and how can we try to make that as smooth as po- possible? Like, you, you can do some things to try to smooth it out ahead of time. Obviously, you, you never know if it's going to be triggered, so you, you can't you can't do it perfectly. But communication is such a big piece of it. It's not just about having a plan that you've signed and you've put in a file, and so you're all set. You've got to keep it alive. You've got to keep talking about it. Keep it keep it front of mind, so that in the event something does happen, you have the best chance of making it successful for everybody involved. Um, but it's it's really hard for, for the solo folks out there to to find an appropriate continuity partner and, and to be a good continuity partner um, because capacity is a huge issue, huge issue. And so a lot of firms that I talk to, you know, they're looking at larger multi-advisor yeah. ensemble enterprise organizations and for good reason because they think well if anyone's going to be able to step in and respond on a moment's notice it'll be an organization like yeah. that so yeah i mean we we did versions of that both my my prior advisory firm and 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 buckingham where i am today like we we both of both organizations had agreements that we would sign with with advisors saying like look you know if, if something happens to you we'll buy out your practice you know here here's how the valuation will work here's how the how the how the terms will work and like we're i mean my my prior firm was over 2 billion under management mm. buckingham were over 50 billion under management so like we mm. just we have the team depth yeah. like that's that's very that's very manageable for a large firm to say like if something happens we you know, we have we have other offices in your city that we can help service right. the clients from or you know just we have the resources to say hey then we're going to open an office in your city and like we can we can do that next week and yeah, <laughs> and get something amazing. out there because the organization is 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 large enough to be able to do that so i I've seen that shift of to some extent of saying, okay, if we're going to do sort of backstop capacity, like those kinds of backstop continuity agreements with with firms that have capacity. Although I, I will say, like I've also seen a number of advisors over the year who who basically communicate to clients, like, look, you know, your your assets are custodied at Schwab. If something mm-hmm. were to ever happen to me, you know, the local Schwab office is a mile down the street from my office. You can walk into any Schwab branch. And and be serviced by Schwab. Like I'm happy to work with you. I plan to work with you for a long time to come. Like if if something ever happened to me, like your money is there, your money is safe. The organization is absolutely enormous. Everything like your your assets have continuity and and safety. 
you you can simply start working with a local Schwab branch. But mm-hmm. you know, you you came from a Schwab branch to me because you wanted more personalized advice. Like I'm happy to work with you for a long time to come. Right. But hey, there's this there's this large platform that sits as a backstop, and I, I feel like that's starting to come up in other areas. Like I've seen I've seen mm-hmm. advisors talk about RA custodians that way. I've seen mm-hmm. some at least at large broker dealers talk about their broker dealers that way. Like, look, if something happened. There are, you know, seven other advisors from our broker dealer in in town as well. So mm-hmm. one of them can can step in and support. Mm-hmm. And and we've certainly seen it on on TAMP platforms as well. Like, I mean, we we do this at Buckingham and a lot of other for a lot of other TAMPs do as well to say, hey, if something happened to you, like your assets are literally already on our TAMP platform. We can facilitate an introduction to another advisor on the platform right. who will take care of your clients. And like Clients don't even have to move; they don't have to repaper, right? Which yeah, easier huge. for the client and you, usually better for your valuation because right. clients don't have to repaper; they tend to stay, and if they tend to stay, then you get a better valuation. On right, it. right, yeah. No, that's that's a, a huge consideration. I think that that that's awesome. The other the other side of it is like I do think a lot about staff. I think I think the staff of advisors are kind of the overlooked part of the equation when it comes to continuity. And so, again, being being thoughtful and and keeping your continuity agreement as a point of conversation on a regular basis to be able to help staff understand what what would happen and what their options might be if anything if anything should happen happen to the advisor. I remember an advisor passed away a few years ago. You know, had had apparently the best round of golf of his life, like had shot whatever and was thrilled. Some number that golf people think would awesome is awesome. Right. Two right. people who don't play golf. I don't golf, right. I don't right. golf either. Okay. So apparently it was fantastic. And he on his way home, he stopped at the office to do, do something and sadly literally died at his desk. It's unfortunate. And didn't come home. The wife became concerned, started calling. <sighs> thought to go to the office thinking maybe he had gone there. And so she did um, sadly discover him when, when she was alone. And so, you know, we, we, we got the call the next day and he did have, he did have a succession plan in place, but the staff member was so at odds. Like she went in the next day and she's like, you know, what do I do? And who's paying me? <laughs> You know, those are questions you don't think about when, you know, you're a small solopreneur. And so, you know, we we had to talk her through that and talk the spouse through that and help them find somebody that they could work with to take over the book of business and try to get in there as quickly as possible. And it's, you know, it's that it's that scramble that very much like like the story of your friend Jim albeit a little bit more immediately. Um, yeah. You know, it's just such a scramble and such a hard thing. But my heart just went out to that that staff member who had to go into that office, you know, where she had worked closely with him, with the advisor for so long. And she's sitting there day after day fielding calls from clients, you know, just the emotional yeah. burden of that. It's, it's and so all. I think giving some thought to to the to the staff and, and just what their experience is. And I don't think enough thought really goes into that. Not from a Certainly not not from a malicious standpoint, but just the, just don't think about it. We're thinking about the clients. We're thinking about yeah. you know getting value for the business, but really need to be thinking about staff members and the impact on them too. So that's the domain of unplanned exits, and and I I was struck by your your comment at the beginning that 
I just to me ring rings so true that any of these unplanned exit dynamics, right? Death and disability, like just it it reminds me of tr- of of working with clients to get them to do their estate planning documents. Mm-hmm. Just no one wants to do it. It's freaking morbid. It <laughs> is like yes, no one wants to think about this and 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 dig into it. And so you know, on the on the one hand, just I guess yeah, we'll I, we can make our own collective plea to everyone that that just that, that, like this stuff does matter i mean li- literally as much as as the rest of your estate planning documents do like it's part mm-hmm. of what what we do as advisors but mm-hmm. you know as as with any estate plan like just if if you're going to set up an estate plan for what happens you make 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 sure the plan is something that the other side can actually execute like don't yeah. don't don't jim your clients or don't jim yourself Poor Jim. No offense, say what his name is, Jim. I would just add one other one other comment on on this front on the co- continuity side of things. The one other thing that I I always recommend advisors look at is in your agreement for death or disability, pay particular attention to how disability is defined, mm. because we've I had a couple of agreements over the years where the language was fairly vague, and during the crisis of 2008, 2009, there were some advisors who really struggled with their own mental health during yeah. that time. And, and we, I, I saw a couple of, of spouses invoke the plan on behalf of the advisor claiming that disability clause. Wow. Yes. Like I'm, I'm watching my spouse suffer too much. I'm going to try to exit them for what I believe is their own mental health benefits. So I'm pulling out the agreement and calling their successor and saying, I believe this has been triggered due to mental health clause. Yes. Yes. And that, and I think that I know one of the agreements had a six month clause that the, the condition was believed to last for at least six months or more. And so that the plan could be invoked. And so there apparently had a, mental health professional side off on that. And so the the plan was invoked and the business was sold and the buyer baked in a non-compete into it. And also a, a statement that if the advisor were to come back into the business, they could not return within two years within a hundred mile radius. And so what do you think happened? Oh. The advisor recovered his health, but then had no business to come back to, and nor, nor nor could make a new one. Like just severed from their own practice. Yeah, so he actually did move up a couple hours north and start from scratch again. So I, I really, wow. yeah, uh, it was really surprising. Totally understandable. I I, I understand. Yeah, I mean, as the buyer, like I understand why you do that. Like, just don't mm-hmm. don't sell to me, get the check, and then open up shop again across the street, right? If if someone's mm-hmm. retiring, you usually don't worry about that. But if mm-hmm. someone is disabilitying out or just otherwise leaving during working age years, like mm-hmm. that's a legitimate concern. Mm-hmm. You gotta you gotta worry about as an acquirer. Yeah. yeah. So pay particular attention to how disability is defined and how you want that whole section to read because again when, once it's triggered it's triggered and it could yeah. be triggered at a time where you're you wish it hadn't been so let's shift a little bit like we've kind of talked about just the world of unplanned exits you know, the the continuity planning dynamic but then you get to the other end of the spectrum which is the 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 planned end right either internal successions or external sales mm-hmm. 
for which again, we've noted like, well, I mean, literally the majority of advisors have not set an articulated plan or any, any kind of written plan around how this happens. And to me, one of the fascinating things for a long time about the advisor business is just this is a business you can do a long time. Like this is mm-hmm. not a business where you retire because you became eligible for social security. Right, That's right, not right. really a trigger for advisors the way it is for for some other careers and, prof- and professions. Like mm-hmm. you, between the the income we earn, the just the fact that it's not as a it's not as a manual labor, physically intensive job. So you know the 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 body can can carry a little longer sometimes. Mm-hmm. It's it's not uncommon for advisors to keep going well into their sixties, sometimes even in their seventies. I, mm-hmm. I know a few in their in their eighties. So I've I've always been struck by all these statistics saying the average age of an advisor is fifty five. I'm like, okay, cool. So like a lot of us won't have to retire for twenty plus years. Like that mm-hmm. means this like we might not have a succession planning crisis until the twenty forties because you can do this a long time. But not everyone wants to, or not everyone wants to at the pace that they are today. So there right. are some changes that start to happen in that intervening time period. Mm-hmm. So. I think it's just having worked with this so so long. You you did this at, at Commonwealth for many years before before launching your own practice. Like, how do you see advisors approach this, or how do you approach this with advisors to, to start this journey, or at least start this thought process around succession planning? Yeah, you know, I think that the the valuations that are in play today are really bringing a lot of of advisors to the conversation in a way that they hadn't before. So now they're now they're intrigued because they at, at a minimum they're 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 really interested in seeing can they take some chips off the table, right? Like they, they don't know whether the valuations are going to stay this high or or how long they'll be at this level. And so is there an opportunity for them to maybe not fully exit, but at least start to take some chips off the table, whittle mm-hmm. down the book a bit, stay focused on a more targeted segment of their of their client base. And then to your point, continue on because as long as they have their mental health and mental acuity, there isn't anything that's really forcing them to leave, right? So, and if they love it and most of them do still love it and they enjoy it, then why not, why not stick around in it? So a lot of what, what seems to be bringing folks to the table right now is is around the valuations and and wondering how they can capitalize on the valuations that are out there without fully exiting. So I've been working with uh, a few advisors to help them design a transition plan to the next gen that is in-house. It's an internal transition, which is lovely. And it's it's a great opportunity for these, you know, early 30s advisors who have ambition and they have what it takes and, and they've they've shown that they're they're great advisors and they're great with clients and relationships and they have some business building capacity. It's a wonderful thing, but valuations are high. And so for them to acquire a practice, you know, a $10 million practice, it's just out of their league. And so helping to figure out how can we carve out a tranche sale or a phased arrangement so that these next-gen advisors can start to get some skin in the game, start to have some equity in the organization, but not be buried by this debt 
over the next couple of years. So I'm doing a lot of that kind of modeling with, with offices to figure out just what it what would it need to look like. And so what what does it look like? I mean, how do you how do you structure one of those deals? Because I mean, I, I you know I I hear this discussion crop up with a lot of advisory firms as well, particularly mm-hmm. once they get to a a certain size that they are they are multi advisor, so they're and if they're internal advisors to sell to, but that also usually means by then you're at least a few hundred million dollars under management. Mm-hmm. You might even be a billion plus dollars under management, and suddenly you're you're talking about something that is millions or could possibly even be north of ten million enterprise value, and just yeah. that's a that's a big old chunk of firm for uh, mm-hmm. anyone to acquire, much less a, a, right. a next generation advisor in their thirties who's like, yeah, I'm like I'm I'm working on my six figures of student loan debt and still trying right. to pay that off. And you want me to take down eight figures of uh, acquisition debt on right. the firm? Like, yeah, no, yeah, no, that's not no. Gonna work. Right, right. So we do, we, do see, right, we do see it in a couple of ways, in, in phases and, and with more than one buyer, right? So more than one G2 advisor in place. And so, for example, one office that I've been working with you know, we, we did a. We started off just thinking, well, we'd love the G two to to buy in at fifty percent over the next five years and and be a fifty fifty partner with the with the founding advisor at that at that point in time, and then they'll you know continue on for a number of years. The 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 lead is not ready to retire anytime soon, but understands the the importance of moving in the direction of of getting that that advisor into an equity position and an ownership position. So we modeled it out just with some traditional assumptions right out of the gate, and it just wasn't going to work. If we use the valuation that that they had received uh, last summer, it just wasn't going to work. They'd end up with like $12,000 in income (laughs) for a year. I'm like, that's not going to work. So we ended up we ended up playing around with it a little bit. And what, what we ended up with were five 10% tranches acquired in successive years and each tranche having a seven-year promissory note attached to it. And we baked in some conservative assumptions around growth of the asset base and the revenue stream. Also, some assumptions about growth, maybe not so conservative in expenses. And through through that exercise, we got to a point where it would be an eleven year eleven year buyout. But but the, the the seller is is comfortable with that with that with that time frame. And and then over that that period of time, the G two will get to that fifty percent level. And you know, assumptions. Assuming the assumption, assuming the assumptions um, work out to be what we think they might be, would have a very healthy uh, income stream at the end, net of making all those those debt debt payments that she could afford it. So, but it took a number of of machinations to try to figure out what is the balance. You know, do do we use an an earnout? Do we try to go out and get get funding from another lender? You know. Do we use a promissory note? Is the seller willing to carry those notes for the for the buyer? You know, there's a lot of considerations there, but we think we might be at a place where we have a, a reasonable solution. For another advisor, though, in a very similar spot, he has a G two that just wouldn't work for, and so we we need to we're working on getting that G two to a, a smaller ownership level and figuring out who 
party number two is, right? So there, there needs to be at least one other buyer in the mix in order to make an exit plan work for the founding advisor. And we don't yet have that G2 identified. So we, we need to figure, we need to figure that one out. And then for a third advisor, they too, you know, they they have a a G2 in place that is a family member, but acknowledge that can't take it over all on his own. So we're looking at a combination of a, of a partial sale of some of the book just to reduce uh, the, the, book, the book overall and then identify what portion that family member would be able to reasonably take over and, and buy. And then we know we need to get a, a second buyer in-house and in, in place in order to take over the rest. Luckily, these advisors have long-term horizons, right? They're looking eight, 10 or more years out. So they have a, a ramp that, that they can make all this happen. But for the advisors who are you have a much tighter time frame, their options are, are, are few. You know, an internal successor is probably not going to work. And so they need to be looking outside. And for a lot of them, they're looking in the RIA space and seeing if there's a seeing if there's a solution for them there since there's so much private equity floating around. Yeah on the RIA side, right? For those who aren't familiar, can you just explain a little bit more of, like you talked about sort of this sales and tranches plan, like phased purchases, just like how does that work? Or why, why are you doing that as opposed to just saying like, I'll, I'll, I'll sell you 50% and finance it over a whole bunch of years? Like what's the, what are the mechanics and purpose of the, of the tranching? So the, the, the tranching is enabling them to, the seller feels that, that they're able to, to handle a gradual addition of debt over time by doing sort of 10% a year for five years versus doing 50% right out of the gate. And then trying to make that that work, that felt too burdensome when it was modeled out. But when we broke it down into five, 10% increments over five years with a longer tail for the, for the buyout of the pr- promissory notes, that felt like and, and modeled out to be a more manageable cash flow situation for them. Because by with growth of the tranches, like by the time you're buying the third or fourth tranche, if you've had growth, the first tranche is probably pretty healthy cash flow positive. And right. so the the free cash flow from the first with growth helps to fund the third or fourth. The bad news is the third or fourth is a little more expensive because the firm That's grew right. in the meantime. But like That's you right. can you can literally cash flow it more easily than bearing the whole brunt of the whole purchase payment finance in the first year. Because the first year becomes the squeeze. Like it's great in the year seven. It's not good in year one. Yeah. Year seven, year 11 is beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> year seven's not so good. Year five is pretty, pretty bad too. But yes, you, you're able to, you're able to improve your cash flow uh, over time. Again, assuming that our assumptions are, are, are going to model out. And given where markets are today and that these firms are, are fee-based, you know, who knows, who knows what's going to what's going to end up really happening but it it seems like it can be a more it can be a more a, a bearable process if you do it as incremental tranches over time well and the other thing to me that's always struck me about these these purchases is that so much of it at the end of the day just comes down to how long you can how long you can finance it or how long you're willing to finance it i mean look like i can mm-hmm. 
I can buy out a multi-billion dollar firm right away, like piece of cake. Just like just give me a 20-year note. And, right. like, <laughs> and the and the payments will be so the payments will be so modest, amortized over 20 years that I can mm-hmm. buy it now. Right. I mean it's, it's why the, you know, it, it's it's why it's why the average American family can still manage to buy a house a right, right? little little harder right now with inflation. But generally speaking, like it's it's right. why we can manage to buy houses that are many, many, many multiples of our income because when you finance it over a long enough period of time, the math works. Right. And you would just it, it always struck me that well, our rule of thumb for so long was kind of advisory firms with recurring revenue sold for two times revenue, and, and we would use this multiple of revenue number. But if you if you went and pulled the benchmarking studies, advisory firms historically were were usually running something in the neighborhood of twenty five to thirty percent profit margins, at least on average. You know, fluctuates a little year to year, mm-hmm. and you know if you're running twenty five to thirty percent margins and you're selling for two times revenue, that really means you're selling for about seven times your profits, mm-hmm. seven times free cash flow. And then you go and look up like the average time period over which advisory firms would be financed, mm-hmm. seven-year note. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. it just, you know, we've always tended to finance these in a manner where the cash flow can cover the note, usually a little bit less at the beginning because you pay the note with after-tax dollars, but you buy with right. with, with but, right, but uh, the income comes through pre-tax. So, like, there's a little bit of slippage from the from the tax, and you only get to deduct the interest, not the principal, and so forth. But it, it would usually be at least relatively close in year one. Then you get a little bit of growth, and there's a little bit more free cash flow in year two, and then mm-hmm. usually by year three, it's getting pretty comfortable, and then it keeps going from there. And that so much of this just comes down to financing periods. And so mm-hmm. again, as you highlighted, like if you if you stretch it out over seven years, it becomes more manageable. If you if you tranche it out over time and stretch it out over eight, nine, 10, 11 years, it just starts to become even more manageable. You know, you still get into the domain of some people just aren't risk takers and don't want to take on the debt load and the risk that right. it entails. But that's right. like that's not a that's not a the next generation can't afford it. That's a the next generation just isn't as risk inclined, which may be why they took an employee job in your firm right. instead right. of going out and starting their own practice. Like, I mean, that's fine. We all have our own. We all have our own preferences, but I, you know, I, I do find sometimes advisors. If we went and built our own firms, we we sometimes forget like not everybody's necessarily as entrepreneurially risk wired as we are. Mm-hmm. And do they need to be? Like, I think that that's a that, that's another question that that is coming up. You know, the founders, the, the these founders started a lot of them started you know the old school way. You know, yeah. knocking on doors and. Call them their two hundred friends and family, and you know. oh, good old natural market list. Yep. Yeah, you know, and so and, and so they they had to have that assertiveness and that 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 drive to be able to do that that kind of work. And some advisors, founders, think that their their successors need to show that same tenacity and per- perseverance and. But do they? Uh, you know, it's a different yeah. it's a different world that, that we're in today. I do think they need to show tenacity and perseverance, but in what in a different way. I, I I just don't know that they need to kind of be able to build it the yeah. same way. So sometimes there, there's this also this, this layer of expectation that well, you know, they they were an employee and they are risk yeah. averse, and so maybe they 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 can't you know they they can't do what I did. Well, yeah. no, maybe not, but they also don't need to. But they need to bring other skills to the table to be able to build the 
business over time so that it continues to grow and it continues to to be a viable entity and and so do do they have those skills do they have the relationship building skills and the ability to get out in the, in the community and with centers of influence and strategic alliances and all the rest you know do they have do they have those business building skills and because if if they do then i i think that 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 is hugely valuable they don't they don't need to be knocking on some stranger's door yeah in 2022 because they would they would get in trouble <laughs> yes yes well and and to me you just you bring up an interesting point around you just like do does the founder need to do this in the first place yeah i mean I, look i'm i've i lived a lot of kind of the kind of ch- championing our next generation advisor mm-hmm. cause for 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 many many years now but i had a conversation with an advisor friend recently and who had actually did like just just finished her retirement transition and and she didn't have a succession plan by conscious decision so like Kathy's vision of this was look there's all this buying activity that's happening like I'm just going to keep running my firm until I feel like retiring when I feel like retiring I'm going to call one of these buyers and I'm going to sell it to them mm. and that's what she did and she got a really good number. Yeah. And, and it's gone and it's gone fine. And you know, she was very picky about who she sold to. So she vetted the heck out of them. You know, she didn't quite pick the one that offered the biggest check. She offered, she took one that offered a very nice check and had a really good philosophical alignment to culture and investment style and planning philosophy and the things that were important to her. Right. She was like, Yeah, I, you know, she had a couple of team members, just none of whom had that risk inclination to be wired to be successors. Like she wasn't a solo. She had a couple of, of associate advisors in the firm, but just n- no one that had any real interest in in being a buyer. Mm. And she was fine with it. She's mm. like, I'll just, I'll just sell it. When the time comes, like the you know the the industry stat that keeps bouncing around, there's still something like 50 buyers for every yeah. seller, and and if anything, that it may even be worse than that, given how valuations keep getting bid up because there's so many buyers relative to the number of sellers. And yes. so you know, like like look, I mean, I'm all for succession plans when there are next generation buyers who really want to buy in and take yes. over, and like then let's let's give them the opportunity because frankly, it's good for them and it's good for the firm because otherwise mm-hmm. they're going to walk if they're mm-hmm. not entrepreneurially oriented. Right. But if they're not, like, it's like, maybe it's okay because okay. there's there's a lot of buyers. Now it gets back to the first discussion, which is if you're going to wait until retirement to sell and then just sell at the market rate when the time comes, you do need to figure out the continuity part of right. like what happens if you don't make it right. from, exactly. from, here to, from here to retirement. But short of that, like it just... I feel like the the volume of buyers coming to the market today has kind of changed this dynamic that way more so than even five years ago and certainly 10 and 15 years ago, it seems like I'm just going to keep doing my thing and building my business. And when the time comes, I'll find someone to sell it to. Like mm-hmm. works just fine. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And there, there, yeah, there, I mean, there are tons of buyers out there. You know, my, my my hesitation with the 50 to 1 metric, and I listened to something a couple of weeks ago that says it was 70 to 1, <laughs> and who knows, you know, well, probably. Um, but, you, you know, there are probably really, you know, four or five good ones that, that are really well aligned with with your firm to, to be great buying options. True. But yes. You're, five, you're, you not gonna, you're not going to have 50 offers, all of whom you like. 
That's right. not happening. But right. you know, if there are 50 out there, the odds that you can get down to a half a dozen that you're pretty happy with right. are, are pretty good, right? Pretty if there are only if there are only six buyers, you might only get one that you like, which is harder. If there are 50 right. buyers, you get six which you like, which is better odds right. for you. Right. And I, you know, when I work with advisors who are thinking in that way, because I do have one one client who is kind of in that in that space. She knows she can't transition internally. She, does, she doesn't have anyone internally. And so she is starting to look outside and well, just, you know, who, who might it be? And the thing that I keep orienting her to is, you know, there are three things that make for a successful transition. One is alignment and culture. Second is alignment of client experience. And the third is alignment in investment philosophy and strategy. Like those three things are the three things that you should be vetting for I, right out of the gate. I like that. So say those again. So I guess I just want to make sure we get those. So al- yep. alignment in culture, culture, alignment in clim- client experience, client experience, and investment, and investment philosophy. philosophy, right? If, if they're if clients aren't going to be happy with how they manage the money when it moves, that won't go well. Right. Right. And okay. so if you can get if you can get alignment on those three issues, which are huge ones. You know, the numbers take care of them themselves. I think advisors anchor to these numbers, you know, it's what they know. They, they work with numbers all the time. And so they, they kind of go at it backwards a lot, of, a lot of the time. You know, they, they, they heard that the valuations are, you know, 2.8 or 3.1 times trailing 12 recurring, whatever. You know, so they anchor to, the, to these numbers and then try to make the situation work for them because of that, that number. And I think it's backwards, you know, look at some of the qualitative aspects of the business, because those are things that are, are harder to, to, to manage and to move, especially if you have a short time frame. Yep. Make sure that you have alignment on some of these key things that are really hard to move on, culture, client experience, and, and philosophy. And if, but if you can get alignment on them, the numbers usually take care of themselves. Like You can usually figure it out. Well, so that, that to me is the other indirect sort of interesting effect of so much buying activity in the environment kind of to the point that you made like there may be 50 buyers and look like at best you may only really like and be interested in half a dozen of them but that's a half a like a half a dozen bidders is more than enough to like to keep the price honest i mean not not that anyone's dishonest but like you know you only need two or three competing bids to make sure that everybody is bidding each other up to the point of what's really like a reasonable market clearing rate. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. you're not going to get underbid. You're not likely to get shortchanged mm-hmm. in that environment. If there was literally only one firm you liked, you've got a little bit more risk that if they offer you a lower bid, like you don't have a lot of choices because there's no one else that you liked. No but else. you as as few as two or three, like, you know, you tell A that B is offering this until B that A is offering this. Or you just have them submit blind bids when they know what's going on in the marketplace and what they have to do to be competitive. And yeah. I've heard that theme play out for a number of advisors that were that were looking at selling firms that said, like, yeah, you know, we got we got a couple of offers from from different firms and you know, everybody structures their stuff a little bit differently of what's up front and what's earned out and what's consulting and what's goodwill. And like you know, what, like once we unpackage all that, mm-hmm. they were really all pretty much similar to each other, which is just nice because that means, okay, you'll get a fair price. Yes. Now, what are the non-pricing factors that actually help you decide which one you want to do the deal with? Right. So when you look at it in that environment, just does that change, does that change how you think about succession planning or, or 
who should be thinking about succession planning in this world where you can say like, look, if something happens to you, you can find a big firm that's that's willing to to buy you out and backstop you. And if you if you if you make it to the end, as it were, like if you make it to the retirement finishing line, you can also just find a firm that will buy you out and pay you a, pay you a good price. So mm-hmm. when when that's on the table, who does succession planning? That's a really good question. I and f- in my experience, and in, in, in thinking about clients that I'm working with right now. It's advisors and and firms that have a real deeply ingrained sort of personal story behind why they got into the business and why they founded their own firm and why having a legacy that prevails beyond their life and their their career is important to them. And, And so some of these are are, are folks in in smaller geographic lo- locations that okay. have a real deeply rooted presence in the community are known as you know the gal or the guy <laughs> who everybody yeah. goes goes to and and so for them it's 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 less of a business transaction and it's more of a a personal it's a legacy. It's a, it's an extension of who they are. It, it mm. not even an extension. It is who they are for many of them. There's so much self-identity caught up in it that the idea of just putting it out to the market when they're ready to sell is anathema to them. Yeah. Yeah. It just sounds odd. Like I spent 10, 20, 30, 40 years building this this name, this brand, this firm, this business in my community. Like, no, I can't just sell and have someone slap their, you know, big national firm name on it and call it a day after after 30 plus years. No. Right. Right. So it's it becomes very, very personal for them. And and so for them, beyond the the culture experience and, and philosophy I talked about a moment ago, it really is is a decision about the character of the person or the people that they transition to that mm. becomes maybe takes on a heavier weight than it might for for some others who for whom they set out to build a business they built a business it's a going concern now and it's time to give it over to new leadership there, there's a there's a bit of emotional detachment in a way for them but but for 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 some advisors it's still very much you know, it was born of a practice. It was born of a, a lifestyle pr- practice, something that they do well, that they 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 could do for for people around them that they love and that they know, and and they they could sustain a, a great lifestyle while doing good work for for people just like them. And and so, for them, this this this, this idea of sort of selling out at, at the at the time just doesn't land quite so squarely for them. So they they are really struggling to find and that and if they are in these more remote or um rural towns or or, or communities, you know, it's harder. It's harder to find that that perfect fit. These are the folks that that think I right. need to find somebody just like me. And they probably don't. You know, they they could probably they could find somebody who shares their values but doesn't necessarily have to be a clone of them. But it's a little bit harder it's a harder transition for them because they, they they haven't come to the point of being emotionally detached from the business. They haven't yet unwound their own identity from 
the firm. They're still very much tied together. And there are a lot of those advisors still out there. So I feel like there's two profiles that that end up working. One is it's 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 much more around the the identity of the firm, the legacy of the firm, seeing the continuity of the firm itself and and finding someone who will who will carry that on. And so external sale is anathema to them. Mm-hmm. And then it strikes me that I feel like there there is a second profile that can crop up, which is simply it turns out that your crop of next generation advisors includes a few folks that are a little more entrepreneurial and risk taking. I mean, maybe not so much that they wanted to go launch their firms from scratch originally, which is why they're 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 working in your firm, but mm-hmm. they like they are willing to take on some of the debt and do the buying and do the transaction and and maybe even have some hunger and desire for it and and just you know they 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 don't become your successor because you want to build a legacy they become your successor because they want to be your acquirer mm-hmm. <laughs> they're just not external they're they're internal and and showing the and showing the will and appetite to to do it and then you can figure out how to make it happen right yeah yep exactly but i'm i'm struck that you, even from your framing or at least the the folks in the firms that you're talking to it is bubbling up more from the you know the the identity of my firm means something to me mm-hmm. and i want that to continue and that's what's driving my succession plan my my internal i want to successor this plan yeah yeah you know and i, I remember this real interesting story from an advisor who kind of fit that fit that profile retired a, a few years ago in, in transition to two successors within within his firm, rural area, he he was the guy, you know, everyone turned to with, with questions. And then I asked him after he fully retired, I asked him to come back and speak to a group of advisors that were just starting the, the succession process for him to to share his experience with them. And one story that 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 struck me was that he was most surprised by walking into the market after he had retired and the announcement letters had gone out, they'd had an event and the whole thing walked into the market and he said, people that had been my clients that I'd known for so long, they held eye contact with me less and mm. they they weren't inquiring about me anymore. Like the clients had moved on. The <laughs> clients had moved on to this new generation of ownership and, and he had never, he hadn't anticipated <laughs> that. And, yeah. and it really, you know, it's a, it's those small moments that 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 signal a shift in identity and and signal a shift in in your role and and your place in the in the community that he hadn't in- anticipated and wished he had known to anticipate it. But how do you know? You know, I there aren't. I don't find a lot of these stories out there that the folks can sort of lean on and say, okay, I, I, I think I need to be thinking about that too for myself. Because what will you do? You know, what will you do if you go into the supermarket and you're received in a di- different way, not an unpleasant way, but it's a different way than to what you've become accustomed. It's a huge change. Well, and, and to me, it just, it, it, like, it mirrors the same thing we see at least I, I've seen quite a bit over the years with clients going through retirement. I mean, it's the same thing. Mm. It's it's that it's that challenge and loss of identity that comes when you've had a particular career so long, and particularly when you had sort of only one career because 
like advisors, one that people tend to do for lifers. If you know, if it, if you survive the first few years, you tend to do it for forever. <laughs> you keep going. You know, not even just the client who had a thing, who had a career for 10 or 20 years. A lot of us as advisors do this for 20, 30, 40 years. Mm-hmm. It becomes so core to our, den- our identity and who we are. Mm-hmm. And that's really hard to imagine just retiring and stopping and moving away from. So mm-hmm. I, I think some of us are wired that way, like did my thing, ready to move on to the next stage of life, fine mm-hmm. let go. They retire and exit pretty smoothly. But for a lot of us, I think we like we don't. It's really hard. I mean, I think again, it's part of why we want, why we don't want to do succession plans because you kind of have to face that, and and mm-hmm. in part why we don't do succession plans. It's like, why would I do that to myself? I can just keep doing this with the subset of clients like working with as long as I'm able to still get on on a golf course with them, which I plan to do well in my 60s or 70s. Even like, why, right. why would I like why would I exit myself from that? Any right. sooner than I have to. And the answer is like, you don't actually have to do you it that soon to. if your health is good. You know, right. again, asterisk as long as you have a continuity plan if life has different plans for you. Right. And I and I will also say asterisk if you have next gen advisors on on your team, yep. that deferment of an exit can frustrate them. And so you don't sort of go, going back to your story about the family that ended up with the, with yeah. the succession plan crisis. If, if, if founders, you know, or lead advisors certainly can stay in for a long, long time. But one of the costs is the, the motivation of the people that, that are coming up behind you. You know, it's not yeah. like I think of Prince Charles over in the UK, you know, like he's been the number two for his entire <laughs> life and, you can't really get out of it, you know, but uh-huh. your your ne- next gen could get out of it. You know, they, they could get yeah. tired of, of waiting. And so I think having a plan to give them increasing responsibility through the years, even if you're still staying on, you know, continue to increase their, their, their responsibilities, get them involved in the leadership team, get them involved in, in strategic planning and, and having a, a real voice in how the organization evolves so that they, they, they feel like and they do have a sense of personal ownership in the organization so that they don't begrudge Yep. You staying on for a num- number of years because there is a, there is a bit of a cost to that with your next gen if you don't handle it carefully. Yeah, I mean, we particularly in the early years that we had launched XY Planning Network, one of the most common types of advisors that we saw that came to launch their own firm was someone who said, "I'm on the seventh year of a five year succession plan." Mm-hmm. And yeah. the boss has said, now I'm really ready to do it over the next five years. And they're like, right. <laughs> heard that before. Yeah. Like, <laughs> no, like I'm not staying until the 12th year right. for this to happen, particularly because when we're seven years into a five-year succession plan, I don't think you're going to leave in the next five years either. So right. like, I'm, I'm concerned year 12, we won't actually be done. And, and so like, that's fine if you don't want to leave. But again, when like if your next generation actually does have a little bit more of that entrepreneurial drive and hunger, mm-hmm. or or you know they've gotten established and built their careers and built their confidence, and now it's showing up for the first time. If you don't figure out how to do something to incorporate the more entrepreneurial advisor, they will eventually leave. Absolutely. Not all will, because some are just. Yeah. Give me a stable job and a stable client sell to serve and give me my salary and I'm going to live my life and like we're all good. So not everyone right. leaves. It's very yeah. specific to who your advisors are. But 
if you do have the up and comers, as, as you're noting, like if you do have the up and comers, they're they're not going to wait for you to play out this slow transition, or at least you you have to write it out how it's going to look, and you have to be prepared for the possibility that your slow transition means eventually you're their employee as a seventy year old advisor. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Great point. So as you've done this and consults around this over the over the years from you know what you're doing now at Transcend, what you did for I know like the, the better part of 20 years at, at Commonwealth. What do you find advisors like just don't understand or miss most often when it comes to these succession planning conversations? Oh wow. Well I, I think that what comes to mind is that um, something I mentioned earlier is that I think they go at it backwards. I think they they tend to anchor on numbers and, and anchor on a number, which they think is the value of their firm, and, and then try to shoehorn everything into rationalizing that number. And I think they do themselves a tremendous disservice for a number of reasons. One, most of the time they came up with that number by reading what some article about whatever the prevailing multiples are and then assume that multiple makes sense for my business. And multiples of revenue are, are really easy to use. Everybody can do that math in their head, but they are outputs of more detailed analysis of specific mm-hmm. businesses. And they are also averages, right? So we, we don't know how many firms make up, you know, contributed to that average. We don't know what the construct of those books of business Mm -hmm. were to have them end up being whatever their own multiple was. A multiple should be an output of a more detailed valuation and analysis of of your own business, whether that's discounted cash flow or the income approach or whatever, however you want to get about it. The multiple should come out at the end and, and everybody would have their own, right? And so you'd end up with your own multiple and then your own multiple makes sense. But most people aren't using their own multiple. They're using some industry average that who knows what. And so it's kind of bad data in my mind thrown on a good book of business potentially. And so I think that the, 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 the initial approach is off. And that then trying to then rationalize that that number to come up with with a buyer and terms of the deal, it, it just it's just all backwards. <laughs> so I, I really think what advisors miss is the importance of the qualitative aspects or, or what I would term the qualitative a- a- aspects of a transition and what really makes these transitions successful. And successful transitions happen with an enormous amount of alignment. Alignment certainly on personal values. You've got to like the people that you're you're in conversation with. They have to share your same values. But as we said earlier, they have to want to instill a, a very similar culture to what what you have created, however you would define that for both your clients as well as for your staff members. They need to share a, a philosophy about client service and client experience so that when your clients do transition, it's not a shocking experience. They're not going from, you know, four meetings a year and they can call you whenever they want to, you can 
fill out this web form and somebody will get back in touch with you. Like, you know, you can't, you have to have some, you have to have a lot of alignment in terms of the client experience for it to, for it to stick because client retention usually factors into the best built succession plans. Like there, there, right. there's some contingency around retention numbers. And so you, you want to be able to ensure that, that the clients are going to stay on and, and that they have a reason for wanting to stay on. Clients need to see themselves too in the successor. You know, clients that, you know, have seen the, them themselves in, in you and in your, in your team, they also need, need to be able to see themselves in your successor firm. So, you know, as you think about family members and having multiple generational households, you know, is your successor a multi-generation advisor firm? You know, can, can your client's kids see themselves across the table from themselves or grandkids see themselves? And do they have services aligned to, to service them, service their needs. Um, so some of that sort of, like I said, qualitative stuff I think is so important, but advisors, in my experience, come to that conversation late in the game. They get way too hung up on the numbers too early. But if you have a good conversation around alignment and then start to do your due diligence and then looking at, well, then what is the value of this business really worth? And then what is the price that makes sense? You know, then you come into it from that angle. I think you have a much greater chance of a successful deal being struck than if you go at it in the other direction. And so wh- where does that start? Because I'm struck like so much of this to me is is starting with we didn't get a good valuation up front because we, you know, use general numbers in the industry and then then kind of backed into that. So I, I feel like part of this is that you're framing up as well is we should also just all be getting like separate valuations or, or separate valuations on an ongoing basis, or at least a separate valuation as soon as you're thinking about this. Like, how do you, how should we be approaching the valuation issue if, you know, read the industry average is not the good approach? Yeah. And, and I, I mean, I, I think that the industry averages are great from a casual standpoint to say, you know, if you're just kind of wondering, I wonder what my business is worth. And yeah. so you apply some m- multiples and you'll get, somewhere in the ballpark and that's fine. But if we're talking about constructing a deal, I, I think they're very poor, poor mechanisms to use. So I encourage advisors to get a formal valuation from you know some of the industry players that you know about, FP Transition, Succession Resource Group. They, they put out great quality valuations in my mind. They, they rationalize them and explain them in a really thorough way. And there are different levels to the valuation services that they offer based on what it is you're looking for. And, and if you're looking for that casual, hey, I kind of wonder what my biz- business is worth, they they have that. And it doesn't cost a lot of money. If you're looking for valuations for a succession plan, particularly an internal succession plan, they have sort of a stepped-up valuation uh, service for that. And then if you're looking for valuations for divorces, which is a whole other thing, or some other scenarios that might involve a, a real deep dive on the business, they, they can certainly go to that level as well. All of them are certified valuations by a certified valuation analyst, a CVA. I think it's well worth, well worth the money to do that, to have somebody really look at what your business is all about and what are some of the KPIs that are driving that that value. Because in understanding what those KPIs are, then you as an advisor have the opportunity to, you know, move them. You know, you you have leverage then to 
to, to figure out, you know, how do I want to improve the value of my book over a period of time? They can help you understand which ones would make the most sense for you to pay attention to based on their KPI analysis. So I think a formal valuation is well worth the money for anybody who is at the point of seriously considering a transition plan and, and putting a, a succession plan in, in place. Now, do you advocate doing these like more regularly? I know, like I know there are some consultants out there who make the case like you should go get a new valuation every year and handle this on an ongoing basis. Are you uh, are you an advocate for the more regular? valuations and given the associated cost or more of the just look if you're really thinking about succession planning to get started re-anchor your expectations to reality go get a real valuation so that you're entering this with the right mindset when the time comes yeah i'm, I'm more of the latter okay i know there i know there are folks that that like to do it like to do it annually and and i think that that's that you know it's totally fine um but i i'm more of the Get a good valuation, get a solid, detailed valuation of your business so you know where you're starting from. Depending on your time frame, you know, if, if your time frame is, you know, two, three years out, that might be all. You, you might need one more valuation as you get closer to actually executing it. If you're if your time frame is eight, 10 years out, you'll definitely need another valuation further on down the road. But I think I think starting off with a with a certified valuation to to really know kind of what what you're dealing with and what might be possible for those next gens, like we talked earlier, you know, can they even afford some of these, you know, yep. eight nine figure things? It's good to know that out of the gate because that that will tell you pretty much whether you you can look at one one buyer or whether you need to be looking at multiple buyers or whether you need to be going upstream and looking at a larger firm to acquire you or for you to merge with and then eventually be acquired depending on how they want to structure it. I think I think starting off with a really solid valuation is important. So what was the low point for you on this journey of building your career and doing practice management consulting with advisors? Wow. My low point was my low point. Well, I I think it it was probably last year after I'd left Commonwealth and was still not not knowing really what I was going to do. Starting starting my own business was not my first thought. I I thought I would re-enter the corporate world and keep doing that. But it it was very apparent that I had no interest in doing that. <laughs> I just couldn't. I could not muster the enthusiasm or or interest in in having a conversation about going going down that path. So I really started questioning whether you know was I done? You know that that mm. that, that 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 question came up a few times. I'm like, wow, is is that it? Like, is am I am I done or is there another way? And and so I think it took a it took having a number of, of conversations with with advisors who've who've become very good good friends of mine as well as family and friends for me to think about starting my own business. And and my husband is my business partner, in part because he has a completely different background than, than I have. And so we bring he brings complementary skills to the table. The stuff that I really don't like to do, he loves to do. Absolutely loves to do. He's he's an entrepreneur himself. He's 
He's a creative. He comes from the film industry. He won an Emmy. So, you know, he's, he's just he's just very creative and, and he has a different way of, of looking at things. And so as I started talking with him about what might be possible, then sort of this whole new vision of what my career could could look like came came about. But I was kind of at a loss there for a while and and, and just not knowing whether whether I, I could I could keep doing it and and if so how I would be able to do it. I am so grateful for the advisors that I have come to know and come to cherish over the years who reached out to me and almost to a person, you know, their their first things was you just need to do this on your own. And I didn't I thought they were crazy. <laughs> I've never I've never done anything like this. I I have no idea what I'm doing. It's frightening it's scary Ugh, i don't know what to do but they they continually encouraged me and you've got the expertise just go get go get paid for it right right it should be straightforward right it should be it should be but how, you know how do i do that but my husband had been down that that yeah. that path before so he knew he's like i know i know what to i know how to do this so it it i was just I'm blessed to have complementary skills with with him and and to be able to build it together i i could not i i give so much credit to people who do it on their own i know there are a lot of people who are literally doing it on their own and i i commend you i do not know how i i i don't know how you do it i i wouldn't be able to do it so it was a low point, probably about a year ago, definitely. So now that you're you're fully launched, you know, I mean, we touched on this briefly at the beginning, but can you just sort of come back and fill us in now of just what what do you do now? Like what <laughs> what do you do for advisors and and how do advisors engage you? Like how does it, how does it actually work? Yeah. So I talk about how I want to meet advisors where they're at. And I want them to know that although they're in business for themselves, they don't have to be in business by themselves and that they can have a partner who's going to help them to build whatever they envision as being a successful firm. You know, some people, you know, ask me like, well, what is, what do successful advisors do? I'm like, well, what do you mean by success? You know, what, what does that mean? You know, we talked earlier about how if you yeah. have a thousand advisors in a room, there are a thousand Business models, there are a thousand uh -huh. definitions of success. So I work with advisors who tend to have two qualities. They are successful because they are very focused. They, they, they know exactly what they do and what they do best, and they know for whom they are best suited to do it. So they're, they're, they're focused in terms of who they, who they serve and how they serve them. And then the second attribute that they have is that they are always taking action. Like they're always doing something to continue to improve themselves, to mm -hmm. continue to grow the business. And it, so it, it's not about AUM. It's not about revenue. It's not about clients. It's not about whatever. It's, it's really about what that individual advisor's vision of, of success is, being super focused about what that looks like and who it serves, and then taking action consistently, continually to bring it mm -hmm. about. 
And so those are the folks that that we work with best. And so the way that that advisors engage with us, it's it's either you know a lot of word of mouth. You know they've they've heard from somebody that has known me from the past or is working with me right now, and mm-hmm. they'd let, like some help. And we just sit down and we explore what's going on for them, and then. You know, I don't have a, a prescribed process that I put folks through. I very much want to meet advisors where they're at and and figure out a, a bespoke approach so that we're able to address the things that are most important to them. And so we go through a process of, of discovery to, to learn all of that. We go through a process of, of exploration of what is possible, what options might be out there. We then prioritize, you know, how those those options fit in with with who they are and and, and what they what they're comfortable with and what they think they're capable of. Then we decide on a course of action and we create an implementation plan, and then we we start to help them to execute on that. And it then might shift from a consulting engagement over to a coaching engagement. So you so you'll work with advisors sort of up up front to consult through issues as well as co- coaching over time and kind of ha- helping them follow through and implementing that. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I think of Transcend as having sort of four business lines. You know, one is the one is the consulting side, second is the coaching side, a third is believe it or not HR. The consulting, especially around succession planning, has engendered a lot of conversations about organizational design and whether they have the right right mm-hmm. seats defined and the right people in the right seats. And so as, as an offshoot of those engagements, we've been working with advisors to help them recruit and place candidates into positions in their firms. So that is going gangbusters and is kind of a thing of its own, it feels like. But I think it's, it, it, it helps to provide continuity throughout the entire process for us to start with that that consulting right. and then work with them through the whole HR p- placement. And then the fourth the fourth thing that, that we're in the process of developing is around programs. We've been asked by a, a national RIA firm to build a six-month program focused on internal growth. And so we're designing we're designing that 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 program right now. And we're super excited about that and, you know, helping them to instill a culture of growth within their own firms and help their, you know, up and coming, you know, mid-level advisors to refine and to hone their skills around generating referrals, around focusing on share of wallet, looking at retention and how they can most effectively do that within their book of business. So those are sort of the four pillars, if you will, of Transcend PM right now. But most advisors come through that that consulting sleeve because they have a problem, it's front of mind for them, and they, they want to help have help solving it. So what advice would you give younger, newer advisors getting started today and trying to get them off on a good foot? That is a great question. You know, as I've been talking with with candidates recently in helping advisors place like associate advisors in, into, into positions, one of the things that I, I try to vet for is, can this candidate take the long view? Can they, can they see the opportunity available to them, certainly today, but also, you know, two, three, five years from now? And can they see value and take joy from the process of evolving 
along a development path that would allow them to participate in the in those opportunities because i think some of the you know some of the the comments that i get from folks is you know they maybe you know they don't know what they don't know and they might overestimate how qualified they are to step into that advisory position today. And so having the self-awareness and maybe even the humility to be able to say, there's a lot more I can learn and there are advisors out there with tons Mm -hmm. of experience who are willing to share it. And I'm going to be patient and be a sponge and go with the flow and understand Mm -hmm. that there's a process of development that is going to get me to where I want to be maybe on a different time frame than I, I think I, I want. But once I get there, I'm going to be so much stronger and so much more capable of doing the kind of great work that I want to do for clients once I get there. And so it's sort of a patience, taking the long view, delayed gratification, self-awareness, I, I guess, is, is the big thing that that I would say to, to, to younger folks entering the industry, there is a ton to learn. It's not all about product. Right. Very little of it is about product really at the end of the day. And, and there, there's just so much that these seasoned advisors can and are willing to share with you about how to, how to really step into the role and the, the, the persona of a, of a successful and compassionate financial advisor. So as we wrap up, this is a podcast about success, and and one of the themes that comes up you you mentioned earlier, Maria, is is just different people have different definitions of success in the first place. Sometimes it even changes for us through our through our own lives. And so you know you've had this wonderful successful career of of providing practice management for advisors, and now in a in a in a new form and incarnation, and with transcend. So I, I'm wondering at the personal level though, how do you define success for yourself at this point? Mm, have my, my, my questions come back at me, right? <laughs> I define success now as being able to do work that I love with people I respect that is integrated with who I am as, as a human being the values I hold as, as a human being and the responsibilities that I want to fulfill for people in my life, whether that's on the personal front or the professional front. Success to me is about finding an integration where the work I do and the life I live are of a piece and they're, they're, they're woven together. Yeah. I kind of bristle at this work-life balance phrase. It it seems Mm. to make it a binary thing. You're either working or you're living life. It's like, that seems just on the surface, like crazy. (laughs) You know, I, I think it's, it's, it's about integration and, and making your work be a reflection of who Mm. you are and how you want to show up to the world and the contribution that you want to make to your your community and the people in it. I hope that I'm able to realize that definition of success through Transcend PM. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Maria, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you for having me, Michael. This has been a very enjoyable conversation. I've had a great time. Thank you for having me. Likewise. Thank you, Maria. 
Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.